The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I shall ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, that spirit of truth, whom the world can never receive, since it neither sees nor knows him. But you know him. Because he is with you, he is in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come back to you. In a short time, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live and you will live. On that day, you will understand that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Anybody who receives my commandments and keeps them will be one who loves me. And anybody who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I shall love him and show myself to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Lord Jesus Christ. I think we've made quite a trek, to be honest, a really diligent trek through this Easter season. Just think of all the ground we've covered. If I can invite you, I know this is a bit strange, but close your eyes for a second. And just think back to Easter Sunday, which was a few short weeks ago. So much ground has been covered in that relatively short time. Think of how your universe has shifted, maybe in tiny ways, but maybe in dramatic ways. All that's happened for yourselves, for your families, for these little communities that we're a part of, even maybe for our nation and for the world. Life doesn't stop, does it? It keeps moving. And the world, in fact, is constantly changing. I pray that Easter itself has been the primary catalyst of these changes, that ultimately it's changing our capacity to love beyond anything else, and that we've been experiencing that in the micro, in our our own little orbits, but on the macro as well, cosmically. And if that's not the case, I think we'd do well to ask, what's, what's wrong? Why is that yeast of the resurrection not, in fact, leavening the whole reality? The risen Lord necessarily changes reality. That's what he does. He transfigures it. Easter must change us. And I pray that it does if it hasn't already. And I pray that it continues to do so. I pray for it in my own life. The first Easter certainly changed reality for those who are closest to the Lord in his earthly walk. It's no exaggeration to say their universe was utterly turned upside down and inside out. Everything changed. Listen again to that very first line we heard in the book of Acts. It's chapter 8, verse 5, and it describes something that Philip did. It's the opening line. It says, Philip went to a Samaritan town and proclaimed the Christ to them. This is the same Philip who not very long ago we heard asking, Lord, show us the Father and then we'll be satisfied. These are the same Samaritans who not so long ago seemed hopelessly repulsive to the Jews. Why go there to bring this message? But he no longer searches for some vague sense of the divine that may or may not satisfy him. Philip's, in fact, found that satisfaction in Christ, risen from the dead. And he can no longer keep that knowledge 
to himself. He has to run to the ends of the earth, even to those who he once found so repugnant because he recognizes that the hunger and the thirst in his heart, which has been satisfied in Christ, is the same hunger and thirst in every human heart everywhere, bar no one. So he takes this message to them. He preaches and proclaims Christ, the anointed one. How is he received? Well, we hear the people unite and together they receive this joyous message. Peter and John aren't far behind. They come and they pray and they lay hands and the Holy Spirit is given to them. The spirit that Jesus promised when he says, I shall ask the Father and he will give you another, an advocate, the spirit of truth. As we draw closer and closer to Pentecost, which is very close now, it's worth calling to mind something that we recollect at every single Mass, at the very center of the Mass, really. Jesus breathing that same spirit on the apostles in the upper room with those words, peace, I leave you, my peace, I give you. This is at every Mass, and it's Pentecost itself. I feel our proclamation of Christ needs attention. Who is the Christ that we proclaim to ourselves and to the world? This is a great concern. It's a concern for us today, no less than it was for the early church. And it was in those early centuries that almost every false Christ was proposed and had to be um, brushed aside, really, very diligently. Some thought that Jesus had no divinity until the Holy Spirit descended on him at his baptism. At that point, he was adopted into the sonship of God. Well, actually, no. That's what happens at your baptism and my baptism. We are adopted into sonship with God, but Jesus is the only begotten. So that's a false Christ. Others thought that Jesus was purely spiritual. He had no body. And thus, everything from his birth to his touching of lepers to his crucifixion to his burial, it was all an illusion. Sorry, this is a false Christ as well. God literally became flesh, and we literally partake of that same flesh at the altar. So that's a false Christ we have to cast away. Others suppose that Jesus had a human body and a soul, but that his mind was utterly divine. So he didn't have a human mind. This is a false Christ. Is Jesus God? Yes. But he has a mind like yours, which he subordinates to divinity. Others finally thought that Jesus was like two people kind of threaded together. You know, you've got the divine Logos, who's the eternal word of God. And then you've got Mary's kid. And, and he could have been bound to anyone, but it just happened to be this Nazarene guy. Sorry, this is a false Christ. And if, if we detect it, we really have to cast it away. That is not our saviour. These might seem trivial at a glance. In the modern world, we think, well, what does that matter to us? We've figured it out. You know, the church has already stapled where we stand. But these things sort of re-emerge like relentless weeds. <laughs> they keep coming back to distort the saviour among us. So it's not trivial at all. Um, because the further we stray from the true Christ, the more impotent, the more powerless our proclamation of Christ becomes in our own lives, in the lives of those we go to. Proclaiming a false Christ brings less peace, less unity, 
less rejoicing. There's less reason for us and our hope that we have. It leaves our consciences less clear. Um, it, it, it sends less dark demonic powers to flight. It does less because it's not the true Christ in our midst who so desires to be in our midst. So we have to know him properly so that we can proclaim him. We have to come truly to the one who calls us. Once again, the great question confronts us. Who do the people say I am? And what about you? Who do you say that I am? This is such a perennial question. And we should be careful because it's not an invitation to invent our own answer. Oh, some people say this, what do you think? No, that's precisely not what it is. We're being asked to encounter truth with a capital T who breaks into our existence and says, hello, you are mine. I belong to you and you belong to me. I'm in you and you're in me, just as the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. It is truth with a capital T, not with a lowercase t that changes every day, that we are called to proclaim to the world. Yes, with courtesy, yes, with respect, but also ready to suffer, as it said in that first reading. I love that little phrase. It said, it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing wrong. It's kind of like suffering is going to be there regardless. So what is worth suffering for? It's a good question. It's better to suffer in the knowledge and friendship of our true saviour who has come among us than to have the cheap consolation of some counterfeit Christ. False Christs have nothing to say to us because they're dead idols. They're ideas. They're smoke. But the true Christ calls to each of us because he's alive. And he's the good shepherd who knows you. He knows you more intimately than you know yourself. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In a short time, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. These are interesting words to leave the disciples with, aren't they? Like, at one point, Philip was asking to see the Father who no one sees. Soon enough, they're not even going to see the Son or the Spirit. Or rather, they are going to see it, but it's going to be in this strange, elusive manner. Sort of hidden in plain sight. Hidden in their words, hidden in their actions hidden in the stirrings of their hearts. Knowing Jesus, I'm sure we've noticed, changes our relationship with the world. Jesus came to save the world, sure enough, because he loves it. But he simultaneously seems to set himself at odds with it. It's a strange, it's a strange position to be in. How do you simultaneously love and and kind of hate a thing. It's not that Jesus hates the world, but there's something in the world that Jesus strongly desires to drive out. And it's so knitted up in the world that we can confuse it with the world itself. The scripture uses that language. The world rejected me, and yet I came for the world. There's a powerful tension of love for the good and hatred for the ill, which is something we are called to imitate as we cling to this true Christ to be in the world but not of the world, to be sheep among wolves, to come serving rather than expecting to be served, and seeking no reward from the world since the world, and here's where we rest our faith, the world is not our advocate, is not our comforter, 
certainly is not our Lord and our God. The world is like a gigantic version of each of us. It's a sinner in need of redemption. It's a dying thing in need of resurrection. The world needs Jesus, just like you and I need Jesus. So anointed with his spirit, we must be the ones who know, who obey, and who proclaim him, Christ, to the world. In this very moment and in every moment, we must allow him to change us so that we can change the world.